looked at an introduction to Megillat Eicha. And as promised, we're going to study Eicha today. We're going to study Parak Aleph of Eicha today. Um, one of the components that we looked at in the introduction was the Abyssidarian acrostic that is uh, holds in the first four Prakim uh, six times, because Parak Gimel has three of them, three Aleph, three Bets, etc. Abyssidarian, um, that's A-B-C-D-E. That's a real word. Look it up. Abyss yeah. Um, and uh, I, I did point out the end of the shear, and we're going to look at this inside the text in another handout I'm going to give you, um, that we have some evidence uh, that in uh, biblical times, uh, late biblical times perhaps, that there were two different starting points in the alphabet. Uh, we have this in Latin. When Rome, in Latin, there's a reference to the Abyssidarian alphabet and the Elementa. And the Elementa is sort of the alphabet that starts with L-M-N. And uh, I pointed out that if we take a look at the first parak, we'll look at this now inside, in the first parak of Echa, it works both starting with the Aleph and starting with the Lamed. So we're going to look at it from both perspectives. We'll read through the parak. So let's begin the study of Echa. Um, we were going to see that Echa has several nuances to it that are somewhat unique uh, and that inform the first four prakim, really the first, second, and fourth more, uh, which is some difficult words, long psukim. Uh, if you think about sitting there and listening to somebody who reads it slowly, how long it is, and he's waiting for that guy to finish, you know, parak or whatever he's got. It seems to take forever, but it, it's a very long psukim. The psukim, as I pointed out last time, are imbalanced so that the two halves of the pasuk are not of equal meter, and that's part of what's called kinam meter, and there's a sense that things are out of whack, so that the structure is, is speaking actually to the, to the, uh, to the um, message of what the text is. Do we have another copy of the text here? Should be another extra one there. Okay. Um, and, of course, the famous uh, switch that we noticed last time that in Echa, that the I and Pe are inverted in Perak Bet and Perak Gimel and Perak Dalad, so that the order of the alphabet is Mem Nun Samach Pe Ayin. All right, and we saw the Midrash on that, but the, the, as I pointed out, the overwhelming evidence is that either the alphabet did not have a set order at the time or the Pe Ayin was a, a definitive alternate order. We found lots of writing exercises where Pe and Ayin were in that order. Uh, and we even find examples in other parts of Tanakh where acrostics are either written that way or seem to have originally been written that way and kind of switched. And one example was, of course, the uh, Septuagint's translation of Eshet Chayel has the Pe Pasuk before the Ayin, Pia Patcha Bechokhma before Oz Vahadar. Okay, into the text. Echa Yashvavadan. Now the word Echa, which is the late term for this Megillah. Remember, the rabbis don't call this Echa, they call it Kinot. Throughout rabbinic literature, this is Megillah is called Kinot. When we get to the fifth chapter, which will be after Tishbab, but Echa is still part of Tanakh, um, we will see how Kinot became Kinot, and I believe that that's a, trans, uh, a, a transition that's really anchored in the fifth parak. But in the meantime, we call it Megillat Echa. Echa Yashiva Vadad. Now, um, we are, uh, who, who's speaking? Something you always have to ask. Now, let's step back for a second and say, what kind of literature are we looking at? In Tanakh, you have uh, legal literature, like Sefer Vayikra. In Tanakh, you have uh, narrative, 
like most of Breshit, almost all of Breshit, really. Uh, you have poetry, you have prophecy, right? You have uh, rebuke. What is it that we have here? What would you call this? This is poetry. It is poetry. Definitely it's written in poetic form, a particular, unique poetic form. It uses poetic um, <coughs> style. The, the acrostic itself is somewhat poetic. It uses also a lot of interesting poetic words, words that don't show up in narrative a lot. All right. Uh, but who's speaking? People who are getting a dirger. A mikonen, a person who's lamenting. Right? We're just going to call him the mikonen. We have a pretty good handle on who it is, but we're just going to call him Hamakonen. His anonymity, which is kept throughout the book, is, I think, part of the spirit of what the book is. So Hamakonen, that's referred to him, is speaking. Now, you have to ask this question whenever you are dealing with something that is expressive. Why do we say it's not because this isn't being written as Nevoah. If it would be Ko Amar Hashem, then I would say, who's the Navi and who's the Navi speaking to? Because it's not Ko Amar Hashem, it doesn't mean that it's not Ruach HaKodesh. But we're not looking at this primarily as Nevoah. These are not Hashem's words coming to us, but these are rather an individual's words. And then the question is, who's the individual speaking to? Who's the audience? Who's the individual speaking about? And then, ultimately, of course, what is the message the individual is trying to convey? So this speaks to what kind of text this is. And it is part of a very large genre in Tanakh that we'll refer to as expressive text. Expressive. A narrative is not expressive. A narrative is recounting. This happened, this happened, this guy said this, this child was born, this child was almost sacrificed, he was stopped by an angel, etc., Legal texts are not expressive. Legal texts are commands, and they have legal parameters to them. Prophetic texts are not expressive, because they're not expressing somebody's fears or wishes or responses to something. They are simply a conduit for God's word about what's going to happen in the future, either definitively or if you don't change your ways, etc. What other texts do we have in Tanakh that are expressive? in which the individual is expressing a desire, a disappointment, a longing. Um, a shir Hashim is a classic example of an expressive text. But if you think about it, almost, almost not all, almost all of Tehillim is expressive, because the individual is praying. Either, thank you very much, I'm very concerned. Now, not all of Tehillim, in fact, large chunks of Tehillim are not expressive in that way. They're historiographic, historiosophic, really, Retelling stories like Kufay and Kuvav, right? They're descriptive, like Barchinafshi, describing the beauty of creation. But many of them are expressive. So many of them are expressive. Eicha is purely expressive. So who is the Mekonen speaking to? Not, don't, we don't have to have an answer yet. But keep that in mind. Echa yashiva vadad. She sits alone. Who is she? Ha'ir rabati am. Now the yod at the end of rabati is a poetic yod. It doesn't mean mine. We saw that we see this in Tehillim. We've studied that paraka before. Moshivi akaratabayit. Moshivim divim. Moshivi akaratabayit. Mekimim yafardal. Those yods are enclitic yods. They're poetic. Ha'ira Batiam, read it as Ha'ira Batam. The city that had lots of people. 
Haitaka almana. She now is like an almana. Now, so the Echa here means how, not in the sense of mechanically how, but how could it be? <coughs> that she sits alone. Who's she? The city that was filled with people is now like a widow. Is now like a widow. Kealmana is a tricky piece. Because what does Kealmana mean? Does it mean that she's like a widow because we're using a metaphor of a city as a woman? Right? In which it's not a metaphor, but rather a simile. Or do we say kealmana, meaning really as a metaphor? The city is a widow, but she's like a widow. What's like a widow mean? An aguna. What's an aguna? Not today's aguna. But a classic aguna is, a, is, what, is what kind of circumstance? The husband's gone off, and we don't know what his situation is. But reality is he's alive. And therefore, ke'almanam may mean we're using it as a pure metaphor that the, that the city is a woman, but she's ke'almanam, a woman whose husband is as if he's dead, but he's not really dead. Which, of course, is who's the husband? So who's the city? <coughs> who's the city? Shalayim. Who's the husband? Kodesh Baruch. Who are the children? We are. And I keep that in mind because this metaphor is going to operate with throughout. So, how could it be that she's sitting there all alone, this city that used to have all of these people coming, and now she is ke'almana. Rabati vagoyim sarati bamdinot. So again, read it as rabat vagoyim sarat bamdinot. Or rabat vagoyim. A major player among the nations. Maybe major leader among the st- among the among the provinces. Haitalamas, she's become degraded. So what you see when I see a ghost town. <coughs> now, who's talking? The Makonen. Who's the Makonen talking about? The city. Who's the Makonen talking to? We don't know. We know we're eavesdropping. Konen is certainly not talking to us. Konen is talking to somebody who's alive in the sixth century BCE. But we don't know who that is. We're just eavesdropping. Balayla. Now it's a very interesting thing about the word tivka. How could you interpret tivka? Just translate it. You should cry. You should cry, or she should cry. The truth is, we know exactly what it means, but there's a little bit of ambiguity there. How do I know what it means? Her tears are on her cheek. So what does tivka mean? She cries. She will indeed cry at night. Why does she cry at night? Because no one's watching. No one's watching, and she doesn't want to be embarrassed in front of all the people during the day who see her crying. Do we have another hint, though, in the sense that if this was a, uh, a standard type of piece in that time period, these, these not characters, these, what do you call them in English? Lamentations, I guess. Not elegy, right? Yeah, elegy, yeah. Okay. So they probably had some <coughs> pattern to them, right? Like, what's his purpose? <coughs> what? Different than we don't know. Let's see. Let, right. We don't know. Let's let's. No, what I meant to say is, do we have a, a presupposition about what it might be based on what others? No, okay. we have no presuppositions. Dimata alechia in lamenachem All of her lovers, none of them are ready to comfort her. None of them are comforting her. Now, who are her lovers? We're going to see a theme course through here. 
which is the notion that she tried to seek out allies and the allies spurned her. So the allies here are other nations, other states. And there's one chiefly who's going to play a critical role throughout this story because plays a critical role throughout the fall of Jerusalem. And we'll see who that is. In Lamanachem Mikol O'Aveha. In O'Aveha you have to put like in quotes. You know, like her supposed friends. Kol Re'eha Bagduva. All of her friends rebelled against her. Hayula Lo'evim. So there's three steps here. One is her friends aren't comforting her. The second is they've actually acted treacherously. Now treacherously could mean that they've uh, informed. And the third, which is most egregious, of course, is they've actually become enemies to her. We don't know who all of these are. And are these, is this one nation? Is this two nations? Three nations? Unclear. But there's, there's a statement here about her loneliness as being also a function of betrayal. Parenthetically, if you stop at this point in the, in the text and you ask, why did this happen? So step back a second. And you come up to an educated Jewish person and say to him or her, around this season, we're mourning, starting this Sunday, we're going to start avoiding things, we're going to fast day this Sunday, leading up to Tisha B'Av. Why is that? Destruction. Why did the destruction happen? What would the answer be? Why was there destruction? Because we did something wrong. Because of our own immorality, our own uh, lack of social responsibility, uh, injustice, something we did wrong, and that happened. Please take a look and see where you find that here. Galta Yehuda Me'oni Merov Avodah. So Yehuda has been exiled. Now which exile are we talking about? Because there are two critical stages in the exile. We did this last time, but just as a quick review. When did this whole tragedy start in an active fashion? It had been brewing for 80 years. Since really since Menashe. But when did it, and perhaps even since, since 722, since the Hurban of the North, but when did it actively get started? It actively got started in 597. 597 BCE, the Babylonians come in, they conquer Yushalayim, they take all of the aristocracy and all of the artisans away to Bavel, they take the king away to Bavel, and they install a puppet king, the Beit HaMikdash is running, everything is fine, it's just a vassal state. And for the next eight years, the puppet king is a good boy and does what the Babylonians tell him, and he obeys them. In the meantime, he's got a bunch of court prophets who keep telling him that Babylonia is going down and you should side with the Egyptians and sign a treaty with the Egyptians and they will help you fight against Bavel and you can rid yourself of Bavel. And they start communicating to the Jews who are in exile in the Gola, a new word that starts here. A Gola in Bavel saying, have your bags ready, you're coming home right away. And then we have Yirmiyahu, who is the one prophet of truth, who speaks against it and says, no, we're, we're in for a long haul, except Bavel's rule, Tzidkiyahu does not listen. So Tzidkiyahu, that puppet king, rebels against Bavel, signs a treaty with Egypt, that's the, and the friends here, in quotes, and Bavel says, you've been a bad boy, and on the 24th, and the, uh, uh, on the 10th of Tevet, uh, in the year 588 BCE, uh, they begin a siege against the city, and two and a half years later, the city falls, and that's where we have Tisha B'Av. So, Galta Yehuda Meoni, we have to think about which exile this is, which will speak a little bit to when is this being written? Is it being written in between the first exile and the ultimate destruction? Is it being, being written 
in the aftermath of the actual destruction of the city. Let's see. What? When he says that the city's alone and its husband isn't there, that's referring to the base of Hashem not being there, which means it's got to be a Did she have extra I don't. I don't. I, um, I don't um, have any. Let's see any mention here about the Beit Hamikdash. Right. That Egypt would then support us in our war against Bavel, and Bavel was like on its way down. That was the notion. Side with the winner. Egypt didn't bail us out, and Bavel wasn't on its way down for another couple decades, and um, we ended up where we ended up. There was no mention of the Beit Hamikdash here. Uh huh. Seems like it. But that not, there's no mention of Beit HaMikdash. Just read what it says. But if you, want to, if you want to say that it's Hashem, you'd have to say that we're talking about after the destruction. Well, who else would you want to posit as the husband? The, she's a widow. The Jews. Well, then who are her, the children? Why does it have to have children? Because she's going to have children here who are not there. Keep reading. Let's see. All right. Um... Galta Yuda me'oni rov avoda hi yashvav agoyim. So she's now settled among the nations. Lomatzah and she finds no respite there. So this is clearly re- re- uh, referring to the first exile, at least. So all of her, her predators, the, one who chase, the ones who are chasing her, found her, now we borrow and we use that as a reference to the three weeks, but literally means between the straits, it's like you're being, you're being trapped. And of course the image of the, that is a siege where you're locked into somewhere and you're trapped between a narrow place. And now watch what he's looking at. The rows to Tzion are themselves Avelot. Now the word Avel is an interesting word. Avel we think of as, of course, mourning. But Avel, and this is a related meaning, in, uh, in Tanakh sometimes refers to desolate. Avlaha Aretz. The land is desolate. Nothing there. So the roads to Zion are, are empty. This is echoed in the famous second verse of Yerushalayim Shel Zahav. This is before, before the war. Is nobody's going down on that road. That road that we remember from before 48 that was popular now, nobody's going down that road. And then of course the famous fourth verse which is, let's go on that road because now it's ours. Nobody's coming to the Moed. Now the Moed can be time, Yantif. Moed can be place, as in Mikdash. Works both ways. The gates are desolate. Her Kohanim are sighing. Now, this is interesting because it seems to say that we're talking about a time when the Mikdash is still standing. And the Kohanim are there waiting and nobody's showing up. Because there's an exile. Betuloteha nugot vihimarla. Her betulot, in this sense, means maidens. It's not speaking about a particular physical property, but just the young girls are sad, and she is sad. So who are her young girls? The daughters of Jerusalem. Her enemies have become Larosh, in charge. And her enemies are Shalu, which means... They are serene. Happy, serene, relaxed. Now notice how the word nugot and hoga play with each other. Nugot, from the word yagon, sadness. 
Hashem hoga al kol arob shayha. Hashem has acted against her because of her sins. This is the first time that we are mentioned of any culpability on Yerushalayim's part. And it's not prominent here. Her young kids. Who are her young kids? The, the, the people of Jerusalem. Which means there are children here. So again, we've got to ask who the husband is. It seems to be clear that the husband is Hashem. But there is no Mikdash that's mentioned here. And they have gone as captives in front of the enemy. What I put in the shaded part is the ketiv. All of her glory has left. Who are we, what's the glory? What is the glory of Yerushalayim? Her children. That's the glory of Yerushalayim. Even her leaders are like gazelles who cannot find any grazing. Imagine that. People who normally dine in a fancy thing can't, are, are, are dying of thirst. And that is part and parcel of the of the, the terrible description that we have, the terrifying description we have. They're walking in front of the enemy. So Rodef now has successfully caught them because they're not running, they're walking. And they're walking without any energy. And the, the image, I don't know what you get, from that line right there, the image that pops up for me is the death march. It's exactly what the death march was. Zachra Yerushalayim, or perhaps Zachra Yerushalayim, in the sense of Yerushalayim should remember. Yimei Onya Umrudeha, Kol Machmudeha Hashrayim Mekedem. During her days of affliction, she remembers all the glory, all the good old days. Bin Fol Amabiyadzar Vein Ozerla. As she falls into the hands of the enemy and nobody's helping her, again, where's Mitzrayim? Where's our treaty partner? And by the way, they're not saying God's not helping. That's not the issue. That's not what's coming here. And this is another piece of the destruction, of the desecration, that our enemies are laughing at us. That's the chilu Hashem. That the nations are looking at Yerushalayim and are laughing at the fact that we've been destroyed. They're, they're, they're rejoicing over it. This is what we've been waiting for. Yerushalayim has sinned. Now notice, she's become from an almana to a nida. Which is better? Nida is way better. Husband's there, he's just separated for a while. But now he picks up on that image of a nida, and he says, all of those who used to honor her are now degrading her because... They've seen her nakedness. They've seen her vulnerability. Remember from Al-Naharot Bavel. What is it that Bnei Adom say when they come into the destruction? Aru, Aru, Ad Hayisodba. Strip her naked all the way down to the foundations. Want to see the foundations? You imagine what it's like to see a palace. And all you see is the gold doors outside and the turrets. You have no idea what's inside. And then you happen to have an uncle whose cousin's brother-in-law one time got to go inside because he was a shtickle artisan and they needed him to go fix some of the diamonds in there. And he comes out and tells a story that you hear fifth hand of how the whole place is just gleaming and that's the best you have. And your whole life you're walking around with this image of this amazing place and all you get to see is the outside. And then suddenly you see it broken down. That's what you're seeing here. 
sighs. And she sits back. She's got no glory. Her tuman, again, this is picking up on the Nida image, is at her bottom. She has gone down, Plaim seems wondrous, but she's gone down like an amazing amount. Sometimes it happens, you see somebody, an old friend, you haven't, you've seen them, haven't seen them in a year. And it's been the year from H-E double, double hockey sticks. They've suffered several losses in the family. They themselves have had health problems. They've suffered financial setbacks. And they look like they're 30 years older. Vatered Plaim. That's what it looks like. This is where something dramatic shifts. Up until now, the first eight and a half sukim, who's talking? Who's talking? The Mekonen. And who's the Mekonen talking to? An audience. And the Mekonen is talking about Yerushalayim. About how amazing Yerushalayim was, and now it's lost all of her glory. Remember what it used to be like? Everybody's making fun of her. She's isolated, she's desolate, she's an Almana, she's a Nida. One little line, Chet Chata Yerushalayim, putting culpability on Yerushalayim. And then suddenly, the voice of Yerushalayim sings out. What did she say? Who's Yerushalayim speaking to? God. She's praying. God, see my affliction. The enemy has become so powerful. So the enemy has spread his hand. The narrator is back. The enemy has spread his hand over all of her glorious stuff. This might be alluding to the Mikdash. Not so clear. Here you have the Mikdash. They've come into the Mikdash. And what's the big cry against their coming to the Mikdash? And take a look in Tilim Ayin Zion as an example of this. Ayin Tet, sorry. Nations that you commanded may not even marry into Am Yisrael have walked into your Mikdash. Which nation is he referring to specifically? Moab. What? Moab. We don't have any record of Moab being <coughs> Edom. Right? B'nai Edom. Yom Yishalayim. B'nai Edom. Yom Yishalayim. So Edom, who's not even supposed to allow to marry in, they've walked into the Mikdash. Bavel is a different story. We have no Tzivita Mevokalach. Ko Amanenachim Bakshim Lechem. And by the way, it's important to note, throughout Echa, the major emphasis is on the people, not on the buildings. Not on the Mikdash, but on the people. And on the people who formerly were dressed in gold and silver and were eating at fancy banquets and now are picking dirt out of the ground and trying to eat. And are dying. Hold on one second. They've given away their most precious things just to have a little food to live. And again... Unfortunately, but it's too easy for us, but we have the imagery from the Shoah of people giving gold and silver and, and wedding rings and everything else just to, to get an extra crust of bread, you know, a little bit of, of, of a bribe. And again, she speaks. And again, what's the only thing she says? Same thing. Hashem, take a look. 
See? And look how degraded I am. Now notice, we've come to exactly halfway in the parak, 11 sukim. Truth is that, time-wise, we should probably stop at this point. And I'll tell you another reason we should probably stop at this point. But if you don't mind, I'm going to forge ahead. We'll do this relatively quickly. Because there's a picture to, to paint. And we'll lose the picture if we don't see it together. Lo alechem kol Who's talking now? Who's talking? Is there a pain like my pain? Who's talking? This is the city. From the middle of the Paragon, we're in the second half, it is the city talking. Up until now, it's been a Mekonain talking to an audience about the city with two short interjections by the city. Please, Hashem, hear me. Now, the Mekonain saying all of this. I'm not imagining that suddenly stones are starting to, to pray. But this is the way the Mekonain is presenting it to us. The Kunin has been also. Why can't the Kunin talking? Because when you say, <coughs> look at me, I've been degraded, that's the city talking. That's the city. So now, Lo Aleichem Kol She's speaking now to all the people who are passers-by, who are passing by, and of course they're all laughing at her. Is there any pain like my pain? Asher Olali. And there's a play on words. Olel, which means to accomplish. Olalot are, or Olalim are little kids, because that's your accomplishment. But, Asher Olali, that God has done to me. So we have the Olalim before who are starving, and now what God has done to me. Asher Hogad, Ulai Biom Charonapo. God has done, God is angry. And in his anger, this is what he's done to us. He has sent down a fire from heaven. And now the city is speaking in the voice of a character we know from Tanakh named Eov. Because in the story of Eov, Eov presents himself as somebody who God has aimed his arrows at. Matter of fact, the name Eov probably comes from the fact that Eov in Parakut Gimel says, Hashem has become my Oyev, my enemy. That's how, that's how uh, the, the city presents herself. Paras reshet liraglai hashivani achor. Imagine this. He set up a trap for me to, cut, to push me backwards. He's made me desolate and all day I'm weeping. Niskad al because of my sins. But look what he's done to me. And notice, she's accepting the fact that she sinned, but she's not accepting the justification of the punishment. And he's handed me over to people who I can't even stand up to. He's punished me, but he, he's put, put me in an impossible situation. He's even set up a time, a special place, to destroy my young men. He's trampled us. Who's crying? Not the Makone, the city. And it's critical to watch the development in Echaz, we'll see over the next few weeks. Here it's the city crying. My eyes are tearing, are, are dripping water. Who's far away from me? The one who will restore me. The one who's the Menachem. Who is the Menachem? Who was the Menachem originally? Egypt. Originally it was Egypt. The one I signed a treaty with. Who turned his back on me. And now Yerushalayim is saying, who's far from me? 
Hashem, who is the one who's supposed to, to, to come for me, and my children, who are supposed to come for me. My children are, are starving, are desolate, because the enemy is defeated. And notice, every time your shalom starts to speak about, yes, I've sinned, yes, but, Hashem, look what you've done. This is not a mimnei chata'inu galinu yatsenu. This is chata'inu, okay, avagalinu yatsenu. It's important to listen to what's being expressed here. And it's not the theology we're accustomed to hearing. But we have to hear the whole safer before we get up to the picture. Persat Sion biadeha in menachemla. Yushalayim has put out its arms. And here, by the way, notice, we've shifted to the Bukhonayim talking. Just like before, we had a little interjection of the city. Here's an interjection of the Menachem. Sivad Rabbi Yaakov, Sivad Tsarav. God has commanded all the enemies to come around Yaakov. Haitav Yushalayim nidam b'neim. And Yushalayim has become like this disgusting, tame thing among them. But notice, the image is that Hashem has summoned the enemies to come around. Sadiku Adonai kifihu mariti, and now Yerushalayim accepts. Stage one, what's happened? Which is? Sadiq. Now what does the word Sadiq mean? So in Tanakh, Sadiq, when applied to a person, means innocent. Innocent. That's all it means in Tanakh. When it's talking about God, it means righteous. In rabbinic literature, tzaddik takes on that meaning for people also. But in Tanakh, tzaddik always means just innocent. But when it comes to God, it means righteous, just. Because I rebelled against him. This is the first time Yerushalayim seems to do what we call tzidukadin, accepting that the deen is correct. But she's still moaning. Well, of course she's still moaning. So here's all the nations. Look at my children. They've all been taken away. Karati Muni. I called my my lovers, and they all tricked me. Again, this is referring to the alliance with Egypt. Who are Kohanai? Kohanim. Gavaz Kenai means my elders. They've all died in the city. All they wanted was some food to, to restore their life, and they couldn't get it. Now, this is the Re'e that we saw in the first half, which is the city's interjection. Now the city speaks. My, my bowels are, are, are melting. Now again, she's not speaking about her culpability. She's speaking about her pain. And this is picking up on a on the tochacha. The sword is brandished outside, but inside there's also death. There's no escaping. So up until now, the threat has been one of hunger. And this is all about the siege. Suddenly the cherub shows up, which is of course another stage. We'll see in Perak Dalad, interesting contra- contrast between the cherub and the rav. Shamu ki ani Again, this is the city talking. Everybody's heard that I'm in trouble. Nobody's helping me. They've all heard the pain and they're rejoicing. And this again is part and parcel throughout Tanakh of what it means to fall. Part of what it means to fall is to have your enemies looking down at you and laughing. And part of what it means to be redeemed is to be saved from that laughter. Important expression. The Chilul Hashem involved in having the nation see Am Yisrael downtrodden and laugh at Am Yisrael is sort of beyond 
our ability to 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 to, to accept, to see. Something Yechezkel speaks about in uh, Lamed Vav. And why are they so happy? Because you did it to us. They see that you have returned against us. So Tavocho Ratam Fanacha. How does she end? Because this is the end of this this particular lament. What's her end? Well, what's the last thing she says? Tavocho Ratam Fanacha Baola Lamo. What's the last thing she asked for? Vengeance. Do to them all the stuff that you did to me. I'm in such terrible pain. All I'm asking you, and it's a strange request, what am I not asking you for? Bring me back up. Bring my children back. Provide food. What am I asking you for? Vengeance. Because what's the biggest thing that's afflicting me? What's the biggest thing that's giving pain to the city? The fact that all of these nations are standing around laughing at the way that you've, you have discarded us. The way that you have rejected us. And the way that how alone we are. And all these people that previously were friends and allies have turned their backs on us and are laughing at us. And that's what the city is pained by. Now we'll take a look at, briefly next time, to start off, is how this particular parak speaks to itself. But we'll get into parak bet. And how the two pieces of the parak, the first eleven sukim and second eleven sukim, actually are dialogue with each other. Really starting to give expression to the terrible pain of the city as expressed by the Mekonen. We identify the Mekonen as Yirmiyahu. And part of the reason that Yirmiyahu has such terrible affliction because of this is because Yirmiyahu the whole time was sitting there saying, this is what's going to happen. This is what's going to happen. And nobody was listening. He was thrown in prison for that. And to see that this is something that could have been averted had you listened. I had the nevoah I was telling you and you weren't listening. Is what causes that much more pain for him. That's something we'll pick up next week when we study Parak Bet. We'll do a quick piece on uh, the uh, Parak Aleph and then we'll go to Parak Bet next week.